as always, it's a, it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to be here with you. My name is Josh, um, and I've had the privilege of serving as one of the interns here at the church for the last, uh, roughly the last year. And as James has said, if this is your first time uh, or first couple times that you've been here at Genesis, we're really glad you've decided to be here with us this morning. So it was December 2009. I just freshly graduated from the one and only Florida State University. Okay, I'm a proud Noel. I'm just going to let that sit for a little while. I'm just kidding. Okay, and now, so for, for Christmas, uh, my parents kind of celebrating graduation as well. They, uh, they didn't give me any gifts or any presents. They just gave me cold, hard cash in an envelope and said, Merry Christmas. Do with it what you will. And that's like every college kid's dream scenario. So I was really pumped about this. Um, and meanwhile, you got to keep this in mind. I was living with three of my best friends in an apartment, but because I graduated in the fall, I actually didn't need to move out yet because the, the uh, lease ran through the spring and through the month of May, okay? And so I just graduated, and you got to ask the question, what does a incredibly mature 21-year-old college graduate do with this cash? <clears throat> he buys an Xbox 360. Okay, now, for many of you, uh, you know this as well because you're also addicted, Okay, uh, and it's you, if you buy an Xbox 360, you also have to buy video games. You have to purchase things to put in the Xbox. Okay, so did a little bit of research, a little too much research, and decided that I was going to purchase Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Okay, now this is, this is a while ago. Uh, did you ever think you were going to see that at church? Okay. Uh, so anyway, I, 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 part-time job, no school, a lot of nights free, so I got hooked playing a lot of Call of Duty, wasn't that good at it at first, uh, you know, and as you progress, very quickly my goal became beat this down to the ground. There was a little, there was something I had heard from a friend of mine that if you beat the game, there's going to be these scrolling credits, and it's just such a feeling of accomplishment, and so that was my goal, I wanted to see those credits, okay, and so I, I worked at it, worked at it, worked at it, but every once in a while you come up to a level, no matter what game you're playing, you come up to a level, and there's like a ton of objectives, and you can't reach those objectives, you have to like you, you, you keep on getting beat by the computer, which is kind of sad, it's not even a real person. And you just keep on getting beat and beat and beat, and you have to start over and start over and start over again. But because of having to do that, I honed my skills, I got better, and I beat Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Okay, now by the end, by the end of February, <laughs> two months later, I had what we should all call a video game problem. Okay, months of playing hours and hours and hours of playing in an imaginary world. Girlfriends, can I get an amen? <laughs> now, I decided to sell that puppy. I, I had to get rid of it. I knew it wasn't a good habit, so I got rid of it. But believe it or not, playing that game teaches us something about life. It does. Having to go level after level and objective after objective is exactly what you and I do in our day-to-day -day lives. Life, no matter who you are, whether you've had what you would consider an easy life or whether you would consider it a difficult one, life brings us challenges, things that come up, and we wonder, maybe this is you this week, how am I going to make it to Friday? Am I going to make it to Friday? Am I going to make it this month? There's so many levels and so many things, so many objectives to do. Can I do it? Maybe, maybe marriage is on the skids. Am I going to make it? Are we going to make it? Challenges in this life. You know, 
This context that we're talking about right now is very similar to the context of the people who are the recipients of a really, really old letter that we've been in now for the better part of three months, the letter to the Hebrews. These people have that same exact scenario going on in their lives. They have a belief system, a belief system that's not welcome, a belief system that's been rejected, and they are being attacked for their beliefs. And so they're beginning to ask themselves the question, is this Jesus really worth it? Is this way of Christianity really worth it? Because I've, I know people that have been arrested. My own mother, per se, let's say, she's been arrested. She's been threatened for her very life for believing in this Jesus. Is this Christian life worth it? That's where we are today. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 if you're a little new to the Bible, that's towards the end. You feel like it'd be in the beginning, but it's not. It's toward the end of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll also have the, the uh, passage on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that's where we are this morning. It's a beautiful passage, full of intensity and energy, but also full of imagery. A lot of pictures are being used here. Now, one main question pops up. One, something emerges from the text really quickly, and that's the question, how? How do we endure as Christians? I think that's what these three verses are all about. How do we endure as people who believe in this Jesus? How are we going to make it in this world? And I think these three verses definitively answer that question. So we're going to dig. We're going to investigate. We're going to get our hands dirty and understand this text. So let's jump back in. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, there's a couple things that jump out at us here, several things that we could talk about, but perhaps the most important, or at least the clearest, is there is a constant call to endurance. There is a call to endurance. The author has done this several times, several times throughout all of the letter, and now he's doing it again. So much of what it means to be a Christian the very nature of being a learner, a follower, a pupil of Jesus is endurance. Well, then we need to ask the question, what does that look like? What does it mean to endure? Well, in our context in the United States, I think a massive part of endurance is intellectual. It's a mind game. For you to say, for you out here right now, for most of you out here right now, for you to say that you are willingly, 
that you are voluntarily submitting your entire life to a God you can't even see, and you're not going to see supposedly until you're dead, doesn't make sense. That's illogical. Or let's say there is a God for a second. For you to say that Jesus is the only way to reach that God, well, that's incredibly exclusive, even judgmental. Those are the things we're hearing. Those are common, and they're only going to get more common. Those are the things that are being fed rampantly in our culture. And if I'm honest with you, every once in a while, it sits a little bit, a little bit deeper than I want it to. But our culture's tricky. You see, I don't think when someone decides to say, yes, there is a God, and yes, his son, Jesus Christ, gives me access to that God, I don't think most people go the very next day, after they submitted to, that, that, to Jesus, the very next day they say, never mind. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There is no, there is no, 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 no never mind. I, I forget that. What typically happens, and it, it perhaps is even more dangerous, is you have point A, belief, okay, submission, giving your life to this God. Then you got point Z, unbelief we don't go from a to z overnight it's small mental moves let me give you an example hypothetically speaking here (laughs) you think that you think that jesus died for sinners huh you know what you're saying when you say that you're saying that i'm a sinner you don't know me I'm a good guy. You know, I treat my wife pretty well. I I hang out with my kids when I don't have to. I'm involved in the community. I do these things. I'm a good guy. For you to call me a sinner is not right. And then, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe they're right. And so you're at point A, belief, and you're thinking, well, maybe people don't need grace for sin. So you step away. Or, don't you know science is God? Don't you know God is science? It's impossible for a dead man to rise. Sure, I'll, I'll admit, yes, Jesus was a real person. Jesus lived, and he may have even been crucified, like your Bible says. But to say that he was raised from the dead doesn't happen. So, okay, maybe you're right. You go one, one further step. All of a sudden, we, Jesus doesn't need to die for sinners, and now he has not, he, he's not, not possible for him to raise from the dead. Or even this book that you guys follow, this book that you all read. Don't you realize it was written to, at the very uh, latest 2,000 years ago, more like 2,000 to 6,000 years ago. How can something written that long ago do anything in the 21st century? Okay, well, then I'll just have Jesus in my heart, and and I won't read the Bible. Another step, and another step, and five years down the road, you're a whole lot further than you thought you'd be. Slippery slopes in our culture are everywhere. They're everywhere. And so we have to heed the warning of this author. We have to listen to what he says. Right before he said, let's run this race with endurance, right before that, he says, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely. Now, the image that he's using throughout the whole three verses is an image of a race. Perhaps you caught on to it. Uh, it's a long-distance race, uh, maybe like a 10K, 5,000, 10,000 meter at the Olympics, or a marathon for those of you who have thicker skin than I do. 
right? So you have, the, you have these races that are really long, and, and you have to endure through them in order to perform well. You cannot put on a fur coat with three pairs of jeans and some high heels. Not going to do well. You're not going to make it. In fact, you're not, you're, you're not going to be able to finish the race. Instead, you have to do the exact opposite. You have to wear minimal clothing. Maybe, I don't know, I, is it called spandex, what they wear at the Olympics? I'm not sure. And then light shoes. And you're able, even, even short hair, which I'm doing really well. Uh, and so you're able to run quickly, run lightly in this race. The same thing goes for the Christian life. The same thing for the Christian race. There are sins that cling so closely. Another way to say that there are sins that easily entangle us. So the image, again, is one of a rope. So you're running this race, you're running this race, and then you choose to do something, and that rope entangles you. That's what sin is. Now, perhaps you don't like this word sin. It's been thrown out left and right. Somebody maybe even attacked you with it. Well, you're a sinner. Only thing we mean, only thing we mean when we say sinner, or sin, excuse me, is that God has a preferred way. He has a way that he has intended. He has a way that he has purposed, and it is good. And when we choose to go against that intention, when we choose to go against that purpose, that is sin, to willingly turn away from God's choices, God's intentions. With me on that? That makes sense? So the, this, this sin is like a rope, and I cannot run. I'm, I can no longer run anymore. I am stuck. I have lost the very pur- my, pur- my very purpose for being on the track. I can't run anymore. That is what sin does. Sin, going against God's way, is an undoing of purpose. Sin in our life is an undoing of God's purposes for us. And so we need to hear him this morning. We need to hear him. Instead of running our own race, instead of doing our own interests, instead of going against God, we must endure with everything we've got. In fact, he's willing to define, he's willing to define endurance as throwing off sin, laying aside sin. He's willing to do that. So are you, are we, are we willing to say, yes, endurance is worth it, Christ is worth it. If we say that, we must be willing to throw it away. Throw away sin. Throw away the things that we're doing that are against him. He continues. We'll pick up at the end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the author is making a very clear parallel here. Think of like two columns, right? And, and you have us and you have Jesus. Notice the language parallels here. We have a race that we have to endure. Jesus had to endure the cross. We have something set before us. He has something set before him. And then perhaps the, the one that is most incredible is that the word f- for us is race. The word for him is joy. It is remarkable that in his most intense moment of endurance, his biggest act of faithfulness, in the most monumental moment in all of human history, Jesus has joy. In in an excruciating period of suffering, he has joy. 
So I think the author is trying to teach us something. When we ask this question of ours, how do we endure? How do we make it? How do we endure as Christians? Part of the answer is to look to Jesus as our example. That his endurance paves the way for our endurance. He is the example for us. Because in the midst of his in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his sacrifice, he endured it with joy. So also should we, in the midst of doubting our faith, in the midst of wondering if this it can even be real, can we, is, is this Christian life worth living anymore? When that question comes up, this author says, staple to the front of your forehead, your king sprawled out on a tree. It gets, I guess, deeper. It gets a little more intense as well because he uses some unique titles, right? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. These are unique, not, not often used. What do they mean? Well, let's look at the first one, the founder of faith. To be the founder of faith means that what Jesus has done has created an opportunity for us to be close with God again. Another image here. Another image has popped up that he's using. This word founder isn't something that he just created. He's thinking back, thinking a long way back to a really important story in the history of God's people. In, in, in fact, it might be the most important story in God's, in, in their history. And it is what we call the Exodus. Right, you have the people of God, their name was Israel. You have the people of God and they are under the dominion or under, the, under slavery, uh, under the, uh, the juggernaut of the region. I mean, the military power of that area, Egypt. Okay, and God, what he does, because he has chosen his people, he has loved his people, he says he's going to bring them out. He's going to take them out of Egypt and bring them to a new place, to a new land. He does that through certain leaders, human leaders. But, but way more important than that is when he leads them out, he gives them a, vis- a visible expression of himself. He leads them. He is in front of his people. As they are walking out, he is paving the way for their liberty and for their freedom. Jesus is the exact same thing for you and I when it comes to our faith. He is the leader and founder of our faith. Uh, Think of a modern day example here. I was was trying to rack my brain. Uh, Building a house, okay? Think of some, uh, think of uh, real estate, not touched, just grass, right? And you want to build a house on there, maybe on a, on a lake or something. Um, and so you, well, the first thing you have to do is clear the land. Is this, is this a plot of land that's inhabitable, right? So you have to clear land. And then once you get those kind of those check marks, you can set a foundation, a cement foundation, et cetera, et cetera. You've begun the work of building a house. Well, Jesus is that initiator. He is the one who begins the work of faith. But it doesn't stop there. It can't stop there because related, linked so closely to founder of faith is perfecter of faith. Now, in the common language of the day, for someone to be a perfecter of something doesn't mean that it was without flaw. It just meant that they were the person who made sure the project was completed. Right? So you have other people who are in the motions, building something, doing something, and you have someone at the end, he or she, is making sure that it's complete, that it's ready. Okay, think of the house again. You've got the foundation being set, and you've got... People who put up a frame, you got people who do the roofing, you got people who do um, all kinds of stuff like 
cabinetry, floors, painting, insulation, uh, windows and doors, all that stuff. And then at the very end, you have a boss. His name, uh, or the title for him is probably a contractor, right? This contractor who is overseeing the whole thing, making sure that the whole thing goes from beginning to end smoothly. And then he at the end, he or she has the, has the authority to say, yep, check, inhabitable, people can live in this house, Jesus. Jesus is that contractor. He is the one who ensures the completion of your faith. In fact, this word perfecter is a really great summary for how the author has been explaining Jesus throughout all of Hebrews. If we think back to chapter 5, he was perfectly obedient to the Father in heaven. His sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, is our salvation. It leads to our salvation. So this is why this word is so cool. It is because of what Jesus did that we can have faith at all. Hear it like this. It is because of what Jesus did that makes our faith effective. Let me explain, okay? So you have the common phrase that uh, uh, if you've grown up in, in, a, in a Christian life, you, you may know it. Um, it says, saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, what that we're talking about there is that we are saved from damnation to God, to, welcomed into his family. He adopts us as his own that he does that, he's, we're saved because of his grace. He loves us. He, he showers himself upon us even though we haven't done anything to deserve it. And then all of that takes place in our hearts individually because we believe and we trust in that truth. So you can go backwards or forwards. We, through our faith in God's grace, we are saved. It is this deep belief and trust that we have in Jesus Christ that applies his work to our lives. And so the author is saying that the object of our faith defines the quality of our faith. The object of our faith defines the quality of our faith. Let's say it a different way. Our belief means something only because of who we are believing in. You can believe that your Honda is going to make it to 200,000 miles. You can believe that the Pats will return as champions. You can believe this, you can believe that, but none of that belief does anything for you. But when you believe in Jesus Christ, life transformed. Your faith is effective because of who you're believing in. So the author is saying something quite massive here. First, we saw he's saying that Jesus is our example. Look to Jesus. He is that example. But second now, we're seeing that Jesus also is our enabler. He enables us to endure. Our strivings, our efforts, our strategies, our plans, they're not going to work. By themselves, they mean nothing. It is only because of what Jesus has done for who Jesus is that our endurance is even possible at all. So when we think we cannot move, you there? When, you, when we think that we're not going to make it, when we think that the Christian life is not something we're, that we're worth dying for, that's something that we're worth living for, remember that Jesus is the very place where your ability to derive, or excuse me, your, your ability to endure derives. He is the location of our faithfulness to God. Now, this is why the author has been using this phrase, looking to Jesus, in verse 2. 
It's subtle, but, the, but he gives us exactly what we need to hear. He's, he's kind of made this contrast. Okay, on the one hand, we have our, our sin, those things that lead us away from our purpose, away from God's intentions. They cling to us, they entangle us, they crush us. But then you have this other thing going on here, and that is to look to Jesus. This isn't a glance, it's not a gloss, it's an intensified stare. It's a fixation. Okay, I'm going to look at it so intently that nothing can distract me. That's what that word means. Looking so intense at something that everything else just becomes black and I can just see it. Now we kind of have a, a phrase that we use in our culture for this. My boss, when I was teaching high school math, it's craziness. Um, when I was teaching high school math, um, he would use this all the time. He'd gather the, all the student body into uh, the auditorium. And he'd say, uh, good, you know, good afternoon, good morning, good afternoon, Walton High School. Uh, thank you for giving me your undivided attention, right? We know this, we know this phrase. And what, what was he saying? He was saying, hey, every student in the room, stop texting, stop talking, stop laughing, stop goofing off, look at me. Listen to me, plant your eyes on me, plant your ears in me. And that's what the author's doing too. Give Jesus your undivided attention. Give him everything you've got. Don't let your eyes go to other places. Don't let your mind wander somewhere else because when you, we do that, we trip. That rope suddenly appears on the track again and we fall. I've been there. We've been there. We've chosen to go other places and we fall. But his, in the midst of, uh, we, we don't know. We, we, perhaps we can't even fathom the uh, the. Um, the uh, amount of persecution these people go through. And he says, in the midst of it all, when you want to give up Jesus, when you say, never mind, Jesus, remember, look to him. Give him your undivided attention. And as you do that, he will enable you toward endurance. Same thing happens in verse 3. Verse 3 is actually a beautiful little summary verse. kind of encapsulates what's happening before it. Verse 3, it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, again, this is just a, a, a call to perver perseverance. It's a call to endurance. But the crucial phrase for us this morning is two words, so that. So that. When we see these words, so that, we should stop reading. We should look. We should slow down. What is the author doing? So that, that, just that little phrase, so that, typically is a purpose statement. I'm going to do this so that this happens. There's a purpose for what I'm doing. There's a, almost, even almost like a result. Okay, So what the author is saying is he's giving us the purpose for looking to Jesus, the purpose for deeply thinking for, uh, about Jesus. And the purpose is incredible. It's for our benefit. It's for our good, that we would not grow weary that we would not be faint-hearted. So as we deeply meditate upon Christ, we will be strengthened. We will, we will stand strong, kind of the opposite of, what does it mean, what's the opposite of growing weary? Being able to stand. What's the opposite of being faint in your soul? Strength. 
That's what he's saying. As we consider him, as we deeply dig into our Savior, Jesus Christ, making him the very center of our thoughts, of our very lives, we will be able to endure this life. We will be able to endure any kind of hostility. So if we look at these three verses, we look at them holistically, a theme kind of emerges from the page. And this is it. Endure in Christ our ultimate example and perfect enabler. That is the imperative for us. Endure in Christ our ultimate example and perfect enabler. So the question is, okay, that's cute, but what does that mean? Where does that leave us? We're called to endure, but what does it look like to do that? Well, first, I think our text is showing us, and as we've already argued, uh, that endurance at least includes the rejection of sin. Part of the definition of what it means to endure is to lay aside those sins which cling so closely. But have you ever wondered, and I have, over and over again, what does that look like? You're telling me to stop sinning. Okay, thanks for making me feel terrible. I can't stop. I can't stop this sin or I can't stop that sin. Have you been there before? How does it work? When we struggle with something, let's, let, let me give you an example. Okay, so let's say you're, uh, one of the things that uh, Christians often do is they, they call it devotional time or, or quiet time. It's just when we, uh, maybe in the morning, afternoon, or night, whenever, you just open uh, the Bible and you read uh, and you're praying to God for, for him to, to be with you there, that his presence might be there, that we might join together with God, that he might minister to us deeply. We pray, it's, you know, that, that experience that we have. I think a lot of us struggle with that at least on a consistent basis. You know, perhaps, okay, I, I did it for three days in a row, and then I stopped. Uh, it's been a long time. Okay, it's, I, I stop, I stop. It's been three or four days. I, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to will myself to do this again. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it better. Do it for three or four days. Stop. And the cycle goes on and on and on. How do we handle something like this? Well, a really old and dead man said that it's through our religious affections. This is part of the answer. It's not the whole answer. But how do we deal with our sin? How do, we, how do we stop? How do we lay aside sin? It's by loving one thing more than another thing. If we want to have a devotional time, for example, or we just want to stop sinning, we want to be free of this addiction, if we want to stop wasting our money, we want to stop this sin or that sin, we must cultivate a love for something else to replace it. We cannot simply stop a sin by itself. It must be replaced with a good thing a better thing, a God thing. So in those moments of extreme temptation, in those moments where we want to deny our faith, in those moments where we want to live an irrelevant Christian life, in those moments where sin is pressing us down to the ground, our first move is for God to change us. In the midst of a a vulnerable place, we must ask God to strengthen us, to help us look to Jesus, to help us consider Jesus. And it is in those moments that we are changed. The old man or the old woman is changed into a new person in Christ. God is doing his work within us. Now second, if endurance also includes Looking to Jesus, what does that look like? How does that factor in? 
on a practical level, read. Read. Read a lot. Read the only book that's worth reading. When our author says in verse 3 to consider Jesus, we have an incredible opportunity to listen. We have God's word, which, I mean, there's no way that as we dig into his word that we will not be deeply considering him, deeply loving him, deeply longing for him. And so my prayer is, God, give us the joy that comes from knowing your word, from knowing your son. Please replace those distractions in our lives, those places that do not fulfill our deepest longings, and instead give us true food, the word of life that satisfies, strengthens, and sustains. Now, time out. For some of you, that's completely unfair. It's unfair. I just asked you to do something. We just applied this text in a way that perhaps you're saying, I hear that all the time and I have no idea what it means. I have no idea what it means to dig into the Bible. What does that look like? Time out. Back in. There are several of you, several dozen of you, who know exactly what I'm talking about. You have been in the Bible for a long time. I don't care if you're 15 or or 50. You've been in this word of God for a long time. You understand how to open it up. You understand how to dig into it. You understand how to find meaning from it. You understand how it transforms you. You can speak of it in your past, how it has transformed you. And so for me to say that endurance includes digging into God's word, guess what? For you over here, it is your responsibility before God to reach out over here and help. If endurance includes the Bible and you know how to handle it, then come over here and help them. Come alongside us who are rookies in the faith, who need it, who need it desperately, who are thinking, yeah, right, maybe I've jumped in too deep. But you know, no, it's a long haul. I can do this. We can do this. We'll come over here and show them how. It was only a month ago that that jacuzzi was over here and we baptized 12 people. You know what that means? When we baptize people, the most immediate level, we're saying, welcome to God. <laughs> it's a symbol that says your faith is now being shown publicly. We proclaim that we belong to Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful. But there's a second meaning. We're not only baptized into Christ, we're also baptized into his body. And the body, that's, that's a metaphor that's used in the New Testament for the people of God. So when we, yeah, mm, mm, you know what we're doing? We're, that, the clapping isn't enough. It's actually a responsibility that we take. If we let somebody be baptized in our church, we're saying, you are now my responsibility. It is my responsibility that you endure, baptized believer, and it is your responsibility that I endure. So if we are simply clapping and then not getting involved in each other's lives, we're not being disciples. I know that's harsh, <laughs> but, it's, but it's, it's here. It's here. Okay, and that's intricately tied to the last thing I want to say, is that our text shows us that endurance doesn't happen alone. It may be subtle, but a critical component of our passage is that endurance in Christ is something that takes place within a group of people. And this is the church. 
Just two chapters back, the author has asked the readers, his recipients, these people, to stir one another up, to continue to meet together for encouragement. It is critical that we remain together in our race. We will not make it alone because so often sin crushes us. We do, we do not endure because we are unwilling to share our burdens and weaknesses. It's a fad going on in the last 20 years that people say, you don't need the church, you just need Jesus. Okay. But God has mysteriously ordained something here. He has shown us something incredible here. It doesn't make sense to me. I know, hey, I'm, I'm flawed. I'm jacked up. I have sin in my life. And yet, I know that God works endurance in me because I'm here with you. I meet together with a group of people that identify with me. We share the same identity. We are brothers and sisters redeemed by the blood of the only Christ. And so that alone encourages me toward endurance. If each one of us is doing this life without the help of others, then we are way more likely to fail. So it is together that we understand our author's imperative. Endure in Christ. Our, our ultimate example and our perfect enabler. If I can say one thing to this church. Endure in Christ, our ultimate example, and our perfect enabler.